Good morning, Village Church. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy New Year. Uh, it's good to be back uh, in Ecclesiastes. We were in our Advent series for all of December and uh, the first Sunday of January, and now we're back in Ecclesiastes. And it's unlike any other book that we find in Scripture. If you've joined us during our Advent series or this is your first uh, time with us on a Sunday, we're in a really unique place in the Bible. And you know it's unique because you hear things like what Camille just read, um, like don't be too righteous, uh, don't, be too <laughs> don't be too good. And so we're going to have a lot to talk about this morning and to understand this. We call Ecclesiastes Scripture because we believe it's the Word of God. And in chapter 1, the author, or we call him the preacher, he makes it clear that this book will contain human wisdom of a human trying to find the meaning of life under the sun. That is, apart from the wisdom of heaven. It's a biblical book. It is the Word of God. It's capturing, though, a human perspective. And so often when people shout, you know, the Bible's full of errors, the Bible's full of contradictions, so often it's just a lack of understanding of where you are in the Bible and the genre that you are in and, and the passage that you're in and how it's capturing the words of the speaker. And so the preacher here much like the book of Job and Job's friends. He's not always speaking as the voice of God. He's not speaking pure Christian doctrine that we then take and, and teach um, in our seminaries and in our churches and Sunday school. This is a good lesson to learn because later in the Bible, you know who else is going to say a few things? Uh, Satan is going to say some things. And spoiler alert on that, those are also not the words of God, okay? So... <laughs> But Ecclesiastes gives us a lot of insight and questions to consider about life on earth. And in God's perfect wisdom, God knew that we need this book in our Bibles. I think as we've been going through Ecclesiastes together, I think we've seen more and more how impactful this book is on our lives as the perfect inerrant word of God. And so we can examine these words with the full truth of God's word. We bring God's word to our text this morning and we're challenged and we're encouraged. And as people who are following Christ, just trying to live life under the sun. And so that's us. Amen? All right. So let's jump in. Our first verse is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. The preacher says, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So here in chapter 7, he's going to begin another examination of wisdom and righteousness. And what's the point? And these are really important words for the preacher to be saying here because it's a statement about the harsh reality of the world, that life is not fair and morality doesn't predict outcomes perfectly. It doesn't promise to give you what you want. And all throughout history, we see God's people often turn God's word into a playbook for themselves. And it puts them in charge, like the Jewish Pharisees. It's, it's easy to feel like we deserve certain outcomes if we obey the rules, and yet as we see here in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, and as we see every day when we walk outside, the world is just not exactly how we think it should be. He's right about this. Sometimes the righteous person has a brutal life. Sometimes the evil person is drowning in riches and business success. 
And the preacher's saying, look, we all know that righteousness is great and foolishness is not great. But don't start thinking that you can sit on the throne of your life by using righteousness. You can't control every outcome. You can't use righteousness as a command center for your life. You use righteousness to push all the right buttons and, and open all the right doors. You will never turn the law of God into a manipulation strategy. In the wisdom literature of Solomon, in the, in the book of Proverbs, we see similar things. We don't, we don't find promised outcomes, but we find probable outcomes, right? We find statements about how, in general, when you generally act in wisdom and not foolishness, things will generally go better for you. And the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 7 is examining the reality that the wisdom literature like in Proverbs chapter 3, it cannot ultimately declare the future. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Living a life of wisdom and righteousness, it should protect you in many ways. It should, but ultimately only God can number our days. And we often want to believe that if you keep the laws of the land, if you're a nice person, that life will be good. And yet that's not always reality. We can't live our lives as if it's fair and it can be perfectly controlled by our righteousness. And so we see far more promises of Scripture that declare God will make all things right ultimately and eternally, not today or tomorrow, not in this life not on this earth, but in the end. And keep going. Look at verse 16. He says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Chapter 7 has whole bunch of tricky interpretations here in verses 16 and 17, we find ourselves asking, so I shouldn't be too wicked, but I shouldn't be too righteous either. Is that what he's saying? Should we find some sort of medium righteousness? Regardless of if he's trying to give us deeper insight or if he's just a grumpy old man, <laughs> What we know to be true, the idea here, I think we can pull out is don't put your hope in what evil can bring you on earth. And in the same way, don't put your hope in what righteousness can bring you on earth. Does that make sense? The guardrails of life, right? Everybody wants to be a moderate. The guardrails of life are not righteousness and evil, right? Don't be too righteous. Don't be too evil. Don't be too holy. <laughs> no, the guardrails of life are, don't be evil. That one's fine. We can keep that one. We'll keep that one. <laughs> That's a, still a good one to avoid. Don't be evil. That one is intact. But the, the other guardrail is this. Don't pursue righteousness as a means to an end. Your righteousness will never put you on the throne. And so... We don't wake up and say, I could be good today, or I could be evil today, and I probably should choose something in the middle. 
I'm going to volunteer at a soup kitchen, then I'm going to kick a random dog on the sidewalk, you know? (laughs) I'm looking for something mid-righteousness today. Don't want to be an extremist. It's not what he's saying. It's not what we're saying. We wake up and we say, today is another day to choose evil or to choose righteousness. And in humility, we declare, God has numbered my days. God controls my future. God provides all my needs. My righteousness will not put me in charge of anything. It is not a means to an end. And now that I've made that clear, I wake up and I will walk in righteousness. Not as a means to an end, but as a gift from the Lord for his glory and for our joy, right? When you pursue logic in so many of these things, it leads to chaos when you follow it to its full end. People are so quick to apply their own logic to spiritual things. When we take it to its full conclusion, we look silly. It can look ridiculous. It's easy to be a college professor shouting out, if God is so good, how can he send someone to hell, you know? And all the students are sitting in the classroom, and they're like, wow, yes, you're a genius. My parents are so dumb and brainwashed. What an intellectual utopia this is that I've found. It's easy to shake your fist at the heavens, right? It's a lot harder to be God, (laughs) It's a lot harder when you have to articulate where you would draw the line if you were God. How would you justify allowing so much evil to go unpunished? You see the logistical nightmare of trying to make God's sovereignty fit into your measure of righteousness. Especially when we go back to verse 15. Who should deserve a long life according to my wisdom? Maybe you say, how could a good moral person die young or die of a tragic accident? Well, then the question becomes, well, who should die today? Anybody? Nobody? I guess a certain number of people need to die every day, right? You see the logic falling apart. I think we need a quota. A certain number of people need to die every day or so. This is, I learned this from The Lion King. And since I'm so smart, maybe God needs me to put all these things in order for him. I will rank every person in order of their wickedness, right? It's easy at the top. Start with the murderers. You got your bank robbers. Gets tricky, though. Pretty soon you get to the slanderers. You get to the people who share Netflix accounts. And you will inevitably end up You have to pick your own cutoff point, right? Anytime we drift away from the reality that God is sovereign, or we begin to believe that God's sovereign actions are not just, well, that inevitably puts me on the throne. It makes me the judge. And let me just tell you, nobody wants this. How do I know nobody wants me on the throne? Because when I was 12 years old, I got my first job as a Little League umpire. And nobody wanted me on that throne. (laughs) It's lonely at the top. By the fourth inning, the parents are ready to murder you. And 12-year-old David swore in those days, when I am a dad, I will never be like that. This year, my eight-year-old started playing soccer. (laughs) Let me just say, 
I will be like that. <laughs> you start finding yourself saying, like, the refs just need to do a better job. I'm gonna, just missing a lot of offsides calls. And parents are starting to grab pitchforks and light torches. And you're, you're like, I'm a pastor, but yeah, light a torch for me. That's fine. And then <laughs> find yourself slashing the ref's tires and it just gets out of hand fast. It's a joke. <laughs> My mom watches online, so we did not, I did not do that. You see the problem putting yourself on the throne. Again, verse 15, in my main life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. At our core, most people, though, still, who believe that we would do a great job on the throne of God, judging the righteousness of the world. But ultimately, if we're to submit to the wisdom of God in our lives, we cannot end up anywhere other than simply saying, God is in control and I am not. That has to be our starting point, and therefore I put this on the slide for you. Ultimately, it will always come down to this. Am I okay with God being in control? Am I okay with not being in control myself? And do I believe that God knows best? These are questions for every day. These are questions for a new year. This week I was listening to one preacher um, preach on this passage, and he said, look, if you think you can guarantee results by doing all the right things, then you're a lot closer to karma than to biblical Christianity in terms of your belief system. And that, may, that statement makes a lot of sense just saying it out loud, but it also makes a lot of sense when you think about the people in your life that you interact with every day. And it's also reflected in real data when we actually survey people and find out what they believe. I often quote from a, a Newsweek article from 2009. They did an extensive survey of religion in America, and the summary was this. The name of the title was, We Are All Hindus Now. <laughs> and they found that 65% of Americans believe that there are many religions that can lead to eternal life. <laughs> It's an incredible article, incredibly insightful, but in particular, it quotes a professor of religion at Boston University, and he describes the modern American mindset. I'm going to put it up here for you. And this is how he says it. It isn't about orthodoxy. It's about whatever works. If going to yoga works, great. If going to Catholic mass works, great. And if going to Catholic Mass plus the yoga plus the Buddhist retreat works, that's great too. What is the key word in the statement? It works. Who decides what is working? I will decide. How will I decide? If it is delivering to me the life that I feel is better. So what I'm saying is that my desires are on the throne. My outcomes are on the throne. My feelings are on the throne. I'm saying that I am on the throne. I don't want bad things to happen to me, so I'll do enough good things, but religion is a means to an end. Religious practice is a means to an end. And ultimately, there's no God that I love. There's no God that I'm submitted to. 
When we consider the words of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 7, we consider the gospel from beginning to end, we can declare, no matter what, Village Church, righteousness is worth it. Amen? Let's keep going. Verse 19. He says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. I think really simply here, you could say wisdom is strength beyond strength. It's something that God offers to us freely. And for the rest of your life, you're going to wake up every day, and there's going to be people who have physical strength beyond yours. I've been waking up every day of my life very aware of that. There will be people who have physical health beyond yours that you wish you had. People with political strength to rule over the land that you live in. Certainly, there's things you can do to improve your life. We have freedoms even to get involved in many things like politics and government or exercising our rights to vote. But ultimately, so much of our world is shaped by rulers of cities and states who do not share our beliefs, do not share our values, do not share our desires. And this reality becomes a fork in a road for many people because many will become passionate then to create change and through politics and government and all things. Many more will feel hopeless and just avoid it altogether and just try to enjoy their days of life. Ultimately, we see in Scripture, I think what the preacher observes in verse 19, what we truly need in all things is wisdom. The world might never give you great authority. It might never give you a loud voice, but you can have wisdom. And in that wisdom, the Holy Spirit will guide you in all things. He will lead you away from foolishness and into the joy of the Lord. And we praise God for those who give their lives to seek influence in schools and in government, bring the light of Christ They're full of the wisdom of God, seeking God first, walking in the fear of the Lord and engaging culture and society. It's not easy. We need more people to do this. But if we seek power in itself, of course, we destroy ourselves. We always choose wisdom first. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. It is strength beyond strength. And so a little encouragement for you before we keep going. I don't know if your job's going to be better or worse this year. I don't know if it's going to be a better year for you financially. I don't know if it's going to be a better year for you in your health and your relationships. But you can have a better year of wisdom. You fear the Lord. Seek the Lord. Be holy as God is holy. You'll have more strength than ten rulers of a city. Keep going. Verse 19 again. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you you yourself have cursed others. Now we're getting into verses that feel like these rapid-fire Proverbs that we're familiar with, right, from the book of Proverbs. We see a lot of truth, and if you put it all together, again, we're just seeing this undeniable link between wisdom and humility. 
verses 20 and 21, then take this wisdom and bring us to humility and gives us perspective that we need for more humility. No one is righteous. Romans chapter 3, right? Paul says it clearly. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks God. No one earned God. We are all lost, and if we are found, then praise God. And verse 22 here, a really cool way to say, we should extend mercy to other sinners because we know in wisdom that we are sinners also. As we grow in knowledge, we're puffed up. As we grow in wisdom, we're humbled. I was thinking this week as I looked at these three verses and how they bring together wisdom and humility. The people I know who have drifted away from God, they see the whole world through a lens of self-righteousness. The Christians that I know who have grown deeper in love and relationship with Christ, they see the world through humility. And they say in their heart, if not for God, I would be as evil as anyone. There's this sort of beautiful Christian wisdom that navigates all of these things and guides the way we see and understand. This beautiful Christian wisdom where you could turn on the TV as a Christian. You turn on the news, and it's always who robbed what bank and who killed who, right? And then they show the face of the young man who robbed a, robbed a store, and you say, well, God has been gracious to give us a nation of justice and laws, and it provides for relative peace, even though we will always have imperfect justice because we're imperfect people. And so I'm grateful that we have laws, and this young man should receive just punishment for his crimes. And yet, you say, my heart is broken, thinking that... So many of these young men grow up without a father. That's a story that I've never known. So many of them grow up in extreme poverty. That's a story that I've never known. They grow up with no hope, no future, struggling in school, needing to provide for their own family as teenagers and kids. That's a story that I've never known. So I'm not sitting in my living room yelling at the TV, we should free this man. But I am sitting in my living room yelling at the TV. Not really, not yelling, but, but I'm saying I could be that man, right? His sin puts his picture on my TV screen, but my sin, I could do that from the comfort of my own home, you know? I could be angry at my kids. I can covet my neighbor's wealth. I can hate someone in my heart, and you will never see my face on TV. That's more reason to walk in humility and fear of the Lord. Amen? When people drift away from God, they are in love with themselves. There's no fear of the Lord, and so there is no wisdom. And ultimately, the heart grows hard. The heart is full of pride. And one of the ways it becomes so obvious is when we think we deserve everything we have. That's what our passage is about, right? How do we fix this? 
like all things, we saturate our minds with the truth. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything we have is from the Lord, so we walk in fear, we walk in wisdom, we walk in humility. Amen? You want to start 2023 outright? Here's a little graphic for you, right? Fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. Wisdom leads to humility. Humility leads to fear of the Lord. You say, David, that's a circle. (laughs) That never ends. That's right. (laughs) You just keep going until Jesus comes back. That's all I have for you. (laughs) I can't have it have an end point. Okay, I tried. It just ends up being a circle. Let's finish our passage here. Look at verse 23. It says, All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Real quick, what is verse 23 and 24 saying? It's saying true wisdom ultimately shows us that we actually don't know much at all. <laughs> and we need more wisdom. That's what he's saying. Just like how every time NASA designs a better telescope, we all get to find out that we're even smaller than we thought we were yesterday, right? You are more insignificant every time those little nerds make a better camera, okay? (laughs) Take comfort. Keep going, verse 25. Little nerds. They're not all little. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. (laughs) The tricky part of scripture. And as a pastor who's about to hold a meeting with all the women of the church upstairs, it's a very tricky part of scripture. A lot of different interpretations of this section of Ecclesiastes 7 here. It really goes back to the whole genre that we talked about in the beginning. And verses 25 and 26 describing what seems to be a particular kind of woman. And then verses 27 through 29, the preacher sharing personal experience of seeking to find wisdom among men and women in companionship. First, what's being described in verse 26? Some would say this is a female personification like we find in Proverbs 9, really known passage. In Proverbs 9, both wisdom and folly are personified as female. And possibly this is alluding to that a bit, but I think the better interpretation comes from understanding the last verse, verse 29. This alone I found that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. So the conclusion of this section shows us that the focus, the idea is that 
go back to the creation story of Genesis, when God first made humanity, God makes people upright, without sin, without evil. And we know from Scripture that the thing that changes is when sin enters the world, we find the curse of sin brought into marriage a war where there should have been peace. In Genesis 3, God tells Adam and Eve that because of sin entering the world, he says this to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the curse brings a war in the most foundational relationship of life. Now, Ecclesiastes is a male author writing to a male audience, and here he's reflecting on one side of the curse. The reality, of course, is that there's two sides of the curse, our foolishness and our sinfulness. It brings hardship into marriage and relationships, but particularly here in marriage, for both the man and the woman. The wise and godly man seeks to find a wife who obeys the Lord, who fights the temptation to try and ensnare and control, is a gentle and humble companion. The wise and godly woman seeks to find a man who obeys the Lord and fights the temptation to be cold and harsh and angry and foolish, as most men are. History tells us that a beautiful, loving, godly marriage is a rare and beautiful thing. And the preacher ends verse 26 by saying, the man who pleases God escapes the harsh woman. Then verses 27 through 29 here, it seems like he's just taking a, a dig at women. He says, zero out of a thousand women and one out of a thousand men. These are probably figures of speech, not necessarily a formal survey that he sent out in all the land. <laughs> Going back to the genre of Ecclesiastes, these are often the ramblings of a man. You don't have to love this guy, just like you don't have to love um, when the Gospels record, record the words of Satan. The point is that sin has ruined everyone. One in a thousand, zero in a thousand. He already says just a few verses earlier, no one is righteous, not even one in a thousand. And soon in chapter nine, a preacher's going to speak in this beautiful language about marriage saying, it is best for a man to enjoy the life God gives you with the woman you love because she's a gift from the Lord. So again, most likely we should see this all contained together as speaking of the Genesis 3 relationship that is broken and the struggles of marriage, even perhaps greater, I think here in the one of a thousand even perhaps more of a struggle than simply male companionship. I want to pause and say this really quick. We have, we have a lot of married people in this church. We have a lot of married people with children in this church. And, but we do have many people in this church who are single. And my wife and I are very passionate about how we can support and love these people in the new year, these friends that we have in this place. And one of the reasons I feel so strongly about this is because over the last few months, we've had some really incredible conversations with many of the, the single people who go to Village Church. And we've had such good conversations about singleness and the gospel and being faithful in singleness. 
I just want to tell you that the, the people in our church who are single, they are full of godliness and great character. One conversation in particular um, when I met with some of them is they said to me, David, we want you to understand that what we are seeing with our other Christian single friends is that they are slowly giving up on ever finding a godly spouse. And they're just marrying people who are not solid believers. And they said, we don't want that. That's not going to be us. And so I just want to say, if you're someone in here who is married and, and you're like, man, by God's grace, marriage is full of joy for me. And it's such a gift for me. I hope you know that there are a lot of people in this church who want that in their own life so badly. And they're trying to trust God in their patience, but they need your prayers. Amen? And they need your encouragement, and they need you to invite them over to your house for dinner. And they need you to hang out with them and just be friends with them. And then, of course, they need you to try to set them up with your single uh, (laughs) Christian friends and family. If you're someone in this room who's experiencing the gift of marriage in your life right now, will you pray this week? Will you write down right now that you're going to pray this week and ask God to show you how you can love and care for the adults in this church family who are not yet married? Would you commit to that? What an opportunity we have as God's people to reflect God through marriages that are full of wisdom and humility and righteousness and are a joy and not a snare. And he finishes by saying this. Look at the next verse, Ecclesiastes 8.1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Some good news for us this morning, Village Church. The wisdom that God's people need is the wisdom that God graciously gives. It's pretty simple. And somehow, as God would have it, we ended up in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning in the beginning of a new year. i got to admit, it wasn't on my list of passages to kick off a new year. Maybe it is now. I think what we see this morning is that the temptation for the Christian will always be this. I'm going to hop in the same boat as everyone else. I'm going to pursue the same empty things as everyone else, and I'm going to believe that they're the end goal. But I know I'm a Christian, and so I'm also going to dabble in some wisdom as well. And I got a devotional book I'll read in the mornings, and I'll sprinkle some wisdom into my life. But God has given us a better way. It's the way of wisdom. Wisdom is not just another thing to discover. It is the boat that carries us into every other situation of life, every other decision. We don't abandon wisdom. We need it in all places at all times. And so we strengthen our boat. We strengthen our wisdom. Here's a question for us. Will I be the navigator of my life and discover some wisdom along the way? Or will I allow wisdom to be the navigation for my life? It's very different. You could take your life either of those two ways this year, and you end up in very different places. How do we do this? Fear of the Lord is the beginning. 
The fear of the Lord gives us the humility to pursue wisdom. That's where we start and we continue until we see Jesus face to face. Amen? Yes? Happy New Year, Village Church. I want to uh, read from Psalm 37 over us as we end our time this morning. I want to read this as we consider a new year that God has graciously given to us. Would you close your eyes as I read this over us? Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Amen.